You are now listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, the brain takes center stage when Ole Petteriella, best-selling author and professional speaker, explores the different dimensions of MS and brain health through conversations with international specialists within neuroscience, psychology and physical activity. In today's episode, guest host Sven Gatsen, medical advisor for MS in Sanofi Genzyme Denmark, discusses the relevance and challenges with measuring brain atrophy with brain imaging experts Morten Blinkenberg, a senior consultant at the Danish Multiple Sclerosis Center at Rikshospitala in Denmark, and Professor Hartwig Siebner, head of research at the Danish Research Center for Magnetic Resonance at Vidovre Hospital. So welcome Hartwig and Morten. So the first thing I want to ask you, and maybe you, Morten, uh, you can start out, is why is it at all relevant to measure brain atrophy in MS? Uh, brain atrophy is a very central uh, measure in MS because uh, brain atrophy is sort of the end stage of all pathological processes in MS. So what the measure we, we really need in MS, in early stages of MS, is the, the rate of atrophy. So the atrophy rate is uh, the central measure that we are really interested in. So if uh, possible to have yearly atrophy rates uh, in order to determine, is the pathologic process accelerating? Is it aggressive? Has treatment effect on the disease evolution? And do you have anything to add, uh, Hartwig? Yeah, I think in the beginning of MRI in multiple sclerosis, the focus was on inflammation. So it was about making the diagnosis, finding multiple lesions, the dissemination space. But the last 10, 15 years, it has been really, the focus has been on atrophy because it's the neurodegeneration that is actually relevant here for the disease. And we know that the atrophy is a better predictor than the inflammatory activity that we can capture with, with MRI to say us something about what is the impairment. So, so the atrophy matters. It is something that tells us something about the state of the brain and what it can do. So I'm actually a little bit curious about why we are losing brain tissue after all. Why do we have brain atrophy and why is it increased with MS? In the inflammatory lesion, there is uh, ongoing uh, neurodegeneration. And of course, there's demyelination. If the demyelination is aggressive and continues to affect axons and other uh, neural tissues, then there will be a transaction of the axon and there will be an anterograde and retrograde degeneration of uh, neural tissue. So um, when we measure the inflammatory process, we, so to speak, also view the neurodegeneration. But as I said just before, there's a not very good correlation between inflammation and neurodegeneration. So there are other factors going on as well. So What are some of these other factors? In, in this regard, we'll have to focus on a very slowly degradating process that is uh, going on that is possibly uncoupled to the inflammatory process. And this is not very well characterized yet, but the compartmentalized neurodegenerative processes in the brain are many, and there are uh, several hypotheses in this regard. So we are actually looking at two processes going on at the same time, the inflammatory process and the resident uh, neurodegenerative process. 
Patrick, you have something to add? As a my person, I'm interested in the lesion. So let's zoom in to a lesion. So yeah. when you see a lesion, then and if you zoom in, then usually you have a central vein. So there's a vein which is in the center, which shows that this is maybe the area where, where it starts. And then you have this white matter abnormality, which indicates gliosis, which indicates that the axons are damaged, that there's demilization. And this triggers a lot of things which we actually cannot really capture with the MRI. So you will have a repair. So some of these axons, you have these are cables which are going through the lesion. Some of the, the cables, they are demilinating, but then they are putting an, another myelin on, so, so it's repaired. But some axons actually die. And then this axon doesn't only die at that place, but it, the whole cable dies. And, and that means the degeneration of that lesion spreads out through the white matter. So this is one scenario. Another scenario is what Morton just said. This is basically that actually the, the inflammation is actually not that strong. It's maybe really not visible on MRI. So the neurodegeneration is much more prominent. For instance, in a primary progressive multiple sclerosis, we will see little lesions, but the neurodegeneration is there. And that means axons are also dying and they will cause the brain shrinking because you have less cells. So there are different complex mechanisms and in different places in the brain, different things may happen. Mm. And in one patient, one mechanism may prevail, the inflammation, and in the other, the neurodegeneration. So it's actually quite complex and each patient has a different pattern. And as Hartmann says, there's a focal inflammation, but then there's also the widespread degenerative processes in the normal appearing white matter and also in the gray matter. We know there is oxidative uh, stress, there is uh, mitochondrial damage, and which results in an uh, energy failure in the neurons. We know, and we can, it can also be visualized in uh, spectroscopy, that sodium level increases and the calcium increases in the neurons. So all these processes are going on besides the inflammatory process. And in the end, these processes will overtake the, the inflammation. And this altogether uh, results in degeneration and a loss of brain tissue. So one thing I was a little bit curious about, and I think you already touched upon it a little bit, is the difference in brain atrophy in different brain areas. We hear about this sometimes, and we also hear that Sometimes you talk about the whole brain volume loss, but other papers are actually discussing specific areas and also what that might have of consequences for some of the symptoms seen in MS. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, we see taking the course of the disease, there are different predilection areas for atrophy in the, in the beginning of the disease. It's mostly central atrophy we see. It's around the deep gray matter areas affecting uh, cognitive areas of importance, uh, the thalamic areas, the striatum and the frontal cortex. In the later stages, we can see that the atrophy goes on, uh, also affecting more cortex near parts of the brain and especially the cortex. But in the whole uh, lifespan of MS, there is uh, atrophy going on but at different time points has different predilections. But the important thing is that, that we throughout uh, the lifespan of the MS patient can see atrophy accelerated in the, in the, in the progressive part of the disease, but apparent in the, in the whole spectrum of the MS disease. Hardwick, anything to, to add to that? From my perspective, we divide, as the anatomist does, we have gray matter and we have the white matter. 
The white matter is where the cables go and where we see most of the lesions, but we also know the cortex has lesions and also the thalamus has lesions. But we, we distinguish between gray matter and white matter and, of course, the whole brain. So we started with whole brain atrophy, and now we're looking more at uh, white matter versus gray matter atrophy. We can segment that, but then we also can look at cortical atrophy versus deep nuclei atrophy, and the deep nuclei, that would be the thalamus, the putamen, the caudate, that what we call the basal ganglia. So we have white matter atrophy, gray matter atrophy, and gray matter atrophy, you, you can talk about the cortical, neocortex, hippocampus, and then the deep structures, which would be the thalamus and the caudate and the putamen. Are there some differences regarding what symptoms you will see in the MS patients, depending on where the atrophy is? I think uh, Maureen said that some of those structures actually degenerate earlier, so that's important. So the thalamus is uh, very sensitive to detect at the early stage. Also at the cortical level, the precuneus, the midline structures, actually structures that interestingly also degenerate early in Alzheimer's disease. So these structures are, in the beginning, seem to be more sensitive hippocampus, So that are structures which are early. And of course, for the cortex, we know if the hippocampus has atrophy, this has then something to do with memory, with spatial navigation, uh, with all these competences. So uh, all cognitive functions will actually be affected quite early uh, exactly. due to and, this. Uh, and also thalamic atrophy. The thalamus is a nucleus that brings sensory input from the periphery to the cortex, but it also orchestrates the communication between cortical areas in the hemisphere. So this is a relay nucleus that really, like a plug, uh, kind of links everything. So when that nucleus is affected, then cognition goes down. So I think I want to move on a little bit here and uh, ask you about whether there's anything we can do to stop or at least slow down brain atrophy in people with MS. Well, of course, Treating the disease and, and treating the pathological process is uh, central regarding this question. So we have to control the disease and we try to live up to uh, the, the criteria of NIDA. That's uh, no evidence of uh, disease activity. So it's uh, the NIDA measure relies on both relapses, relies on new uh, neurological symptoms and relies on the, the presence of new MRI lesions. So this is what we call the NIDA-3 criteria. And then it's actually been uh, proposed that we should add uh, brain atrophy to the NIDA criteria and then call it NIDA-4. And this illustrates the importance of atrophy in the disease-modifying treatment of the MS patient. So if we can stop the disease or treated uh, to a, a very minimal level, then we have several studies have shown that we can control the atrophy of the brain in the long term. So this has been shown in uh, clinical trials uh, with specific products, uh, compounds, but it has also been shown in, in, uh, in a very large uh, meta-analysis that if you treat the MS disease, then you'll also have a reduction in uh, atrophy rate of the MS patient. Any other factors you can do to stop or slow down brain atrophy besides the, the treatments you're mentioning? Of course, there are general things that you can recommend to the MS patient. You can uh, recommend a healthy life with a healthy nutrition and uh, stop smoking, which accelerates the, the MS disease. And take care of the vitamin D intake is, is also very important. But uh, it has also been shown actually by a Danish group that physical exercise is probably uh, has a central role in, in preserving uh, brain tissue 
So uh, physical training and exercise is very important uh, for the MS patient. So my next question um, is uh, about how brain atrophy is currently being assessed in clinical practice. Here I'm very happy and very pleased to have both radiological expert uh, Hartwig Siebner and also uh, an MS uh, expert uh, who sees the MS patient uh, on a daily basis, Morten. So maybe I want to start out with you, Hartwig. What information regarding brain atrophy is actually shared with the neurologist of everything you record? What we need for measuring brain atrophy is actually not a lot. We need a T1-weighted, high-resolution, whole-volume, we call it three-dimensional MRI of the brain, and preferably of the upper spinal cord. So the T1-weighted means that we can nicely see the gray and white matter and the cerebrospinal fluid. It would be nice to have a flare in the T2 sequence uh, as an addendum. So these are routine sequences which any scanner can give. So measuring it is actually quite simple at the first look. But how much of this is used, that's a different question because it's actually quite difficult to quantify it. So a radiologist or a neurologist will always look at the images and will always look at the atrophy. So with what we call the clinician's eye. Mm. And and of course, you see in some patients immediately that there's atrophy. But the problem is to see an atrophy progress from one year to another with the naked eye. That is actually quite difficult. So do I hear you say in a general report, is it every six to 12 months you, you get a new MRI scan for the patients typically? Yes, it's uh, typically every year, yes. Every year. And then generally it will only be if the clinician eye is noticing a visible brain atrophy yeah. that, that will report I, it to the I, I, I'm not a neuroradiologist, but they are trained to look at is there less substance. And that you can see by increasing the inner ventricle system. If that enlarges, then you have inner atrophy. If you have more cerebral spinal fluid around the cortex, then you have outer atrophy. And they will always report that because they trained for this. But it has to be quite massive because there is a lot of variability from you and me. We might have completely different volumes and, and still are perfectly healthy. So the, the clinician's eye is, is sensitive to see large changes, but not small changes. And they will always be reported. But I would be careful just with my eyeball and say, oh, there's a 0.5% or 0.8% atrophy. That is maybe too much to ask. And maybe I want to ask you then, Morten, uh, how is the information you get from the radiologists? So when you get the reports after the yearly scan, how is that information being used? Well, it's hard because uh, we don't really uh, have yearly reports on the atrophy rate from a visual point of view. That's not relevant because it's, it's not obvious. A uh, well person has brain atrophy, uh, which is uh, uh, 0.1 to 0.3% every year. But if you have MS and you have an active disease, then the atrophy rate will increase considerably to about 1% to 1.3% per year. But even though it, it is 5 to 10 factor higher, you can't really see the increase in atrophy on a yearly basis. Maybe you can see it after five years, maybe you can see it after seven years. And as I said in the beginning, when you when it's visually obvious, then it has very limited clinical value for the neurologists. Of course, we can discriminate between a preserved and patient when the beginning of the disease and with a chronic MS patient. But we need more accurate measures as we have in the clinical trials. 
where brain atrophy is, is broken down into uh, yearly rates. Of course, we should be very cautious in this regard. And because when you start an anti-inflammatory MS uh, disease-modifying treatment, you have this uh, phenomenon called uh, pseudoatrophy. So when you treat the inflammation, the acute in- inflammatory process, then you will take uh, the water component out of the lesion and the brain will shrink. So this doesn't mean that the, that the treatment does not work. This definitely means that the treatment is working. But you have to do a re-baseline of your MRI and then uh, wait six months and then do an, a baseline scanning and then you can start determining atrophy rate in a clinical content. And this would be a very interesting measure for a clinician to have in the daily clinical use, uh, determining if efficacy of treatment and response to treatment. But there are several pitfalls uh, in this regard. And maybe, Harvey, you can uh, talk a little bit about uh, these technical problems. I think maybe just to explain what in clinical trials normally is done. There you have a, a reader center, which is specialized in analyzing these data. Everything is highly standardized. And you have a software that you use, and you compare the first to the second to the third scan. There are two methods to do this in principle. One is we call it the voxel-based method. So voxel means that each point in your image will be analyzed, will be normalized, and then you do statistics on that. The other one is the template-based approach. So you use the first scan as a, as a template, and then you adjust the other scans to that, and then you look how much the template is changing. So these are two principles, and these are two kind of computational methods which are established and which can be used. So we have mathematical methods, computational methods, programs that actually can measure it and could give a number. In the clinical trials, the issue is we're not looking at a single subject. We use uh, group data. So we're looking at, at groups and then we look whether things significantly are different. So we're actually not so interested in figuring out is the single measurement actually 100% precise. It's about the group What Morton wants to have is actually give me a number in a single patient and this number has to be correct because I want to make a decision in that patient and not in the group. And and then things getting a little bit more complicated. Why don't you give Morton the number, Harvey? <laughs> I think I think it's it, it's it's easy to give the number, but but it would require that, for instance, at our place we use always the same scanner, I would say. We use always the same sequence. We use always the same way to position the patient. We would always use the same way to pre-process the data. Maybe it's always the same person doing the same mathematical measurement and then do some quality check. And then I would be actually pretty safe. But in the healthcare system, such a thing is not easy to implement. We have waiting lists. We actually can barely cope with the numbers of patients. They will not be scanned at the same scanner. It will be, of course, a different radiographer. They have different preferences. There will be different ways of looking at the data, different scanner types. So there will be a lot of things just by the measurement will already be very different from one measurement to the other. And that introduces what we call noise. So our measurement is no longer precise. So Morton told about, okay, 0.3% maybe in a healthy subject. If you are lucky, maybe 0.2% brain go down the drain every year. In a patient, maybe 0.5, maybe 1. That sounds a big difference. But if you then have a... a All the error, noise. <laughs> if, you have a, if your measurement error is then 0.5%, oh, then it's getting a little bit more complicated. And often it's much more. 
Sanofi Genzyme is a proud sponsor of the Global MS Brain Health Initiative, where the aim is to maximize lifelong brain health for people living with MS, creating a better future for everyone affected by the disease. The initiative calls for greater urgency at every stage from diagnosing, treating and managing MS. Time matters in MS. Read more about the initiative at msbrainhealth.org. So in theory, if all the things you mentioned about using the same scanner, same sequence, same radiologist, etc., if all of that would actually be happening in the healthcare system, you would actually be able to have quite a good number, as you're mentioning. But in reality, that's just not the case at the moment. I think it, it would be possible if, if people would put resources in it. But the number is not a number of atrophy. The number is a number of volume. And I really want to emphasize that. You get mm -hmm. out a number of volume. And volume is most likely atrophy, but mm -hmm. it can be a lot of other things. And that's what we call then the physiological noise. So we have noise or uncertainty introduced by us, by the scanner, by the radiographer, by the doctor, by the person running the analysis. But we have also noise and variation coming out of the brain because volume doesn't mean always atrophy. What else could it be? I think Morton already named the pseudoatrophy so that, that if you start a treatment which is effective, that you have an increase in it's efficient. So, so your, your brain shrinks because you have less edema, less inflammation. That's good. But your brain volume is smaller and then you would say, oh, is it atrophy? No, it isn't. It's actually quite good. So you should actually then repeat a scan six months later and then you could actually account for it. So never do it at the beginning of a treatment. If, if you start a treatment from scratch, then I think you should do a scan six, six months later. And then that one would not have the pseudoatrophy because that's then kind of out of the equation. As far as I understand, at least in Denmark, this is often done that you do a scan three to six months after you start a new oh, treatment. Yes. Is that correct? That's true. And then you actually have the possibility of doing a rebaselining there. Uh, hardly express the methodological problems. And also touched upon the patient, but the patient, the level of uh, hydration, for example, or the patient's nutrition is important. Just the hydration alone, if, if a patient is underhydrated, then the brain might uh, shrink uh, 0.1 to 0.2 percent. It, it has been shown. If, uh, if the patient is smoking or drinking a cup of coffee before the scan, this affects the, the brain volume. And uh, comorbidity, other diseases, has a very uh, large impact on the brain volume, as well as active MS lesions. So if you for example, have an active MS lesion on a treatment in the course of the treatment, then you'll actually detect a larger volume because... Uh, mm. So a smaller uh, brain atrophy because so, you have a so, lesion where you have inflammation, yeah. So you have to you have to determine in a very uh, strict context, the patient have to come at a certain time point every day in order to reduce the scan-to-scan -scan, uh, uh, variability. So this, this is that has possible to be... in clinic in in the healthcare system uh, currently, or is it? How is that? Yeah, how often is it possible to do that? And do you have standard <laughs> protocols regarding, for example, hydration and? We have coffee? no no standard protocols. No, no standard protocols. It's difficult. That's 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 the point which one has to take up, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to use it uh, for this, you have to optimize all the context. You have to explain the the patient don't drink. Uh, two cups of coffee before and, and get dehydrated, don't smoke maybe before. And so there are a lot of things which you'd have to take into account, right? So, so, so this, that, that makes it more difficult. 
that kind of brings me to the next level, uh, all this complexity we've just discussed, because I want to hear then from the two of you, the two experts, what are the most promising methods then? How is this field moving? Are we, are we moving on towards some new opportunities within measuring brain atrophy? Or what, what would you kind of say were the top three maybe uh, most promising uh, developments? Now we talked only about global brain volume. So the global brain volume is very sensitive to these measures. And also the white matter is more sensitive because there were the lesion R, there were the hydration. So actually, if you go for more local measures, which would be a trend, that could actually help. So thinking about the thalamus, that would be actually an area where I would expect that the effects are not as big, but it has not been really thoroughly tested. Or the spinal cord, when you look at the diameter of the spinal cord, that could be a measure that, that you could plug in, which is very local. It has nothing to do with the whole brain. So moving not away, but including more local measures could be one of the things we should do in the future. And it's already done uh, and integrate that with the global measures. So I think that would be one way of moving forward, actually using the, uh, not, not reducing atrophy to one number, which I think is stupid. We have a lot of information. So, so let's use the information. Let's, let's be smart. That's actually very interesting because I, I have heard that several groups in, in Switzerland are actually already now using, as you mentioned, thalamic uh, volume as a measure and looking into thalamic atrophy in clinical practice and, and using that information in there. Specifically for the thalamus, you have to be, it's good, but you have to be careful because depending on your T1 sequence, the gray-white matter contrast for the thalamus is not always as good. So the lateral part of it is actually then sometimes the, the, the border is not easy to define. And this is even worse for the putamen. So basically, you have to, for, for these structures, it's very important that you tweak your sequence so that you actually can measure the border. And, and once you have done that, it's a very promising method. And, and it's not only Switzerland, a lot of groups are doing this. If you segment out the, the gray matter, this is uh, less dependent on the physiological and uh, perhaps also the methodological variation. So, so you can use specifically the, the, the gray matter volume. And this has been shown to predict uh, the cause of the disease much more precisely than whole brain volume. And also correlates much better to, for example, cognitive dysfunction or, and also the physical ability and the EDSS score. So it's very important. This has not uh, really been characterized in, in large scale yet. This is going on right now. But gray matter atrophy and, and maybe a composite uh, measure using also uh, thalamic volume and perhaps also the diameter of the spinal cord. I think this is the way that we should go and try to refine the atrophy measures uh, in MS. So there was a wish, wish list for, for Hardwick there, actually. <laughs> yeah. so, so when would that be possible then, Hardwick? To I personally think that segmenting the gray matter is already possible. There's freeware out there, but also commercially available software that can do good segmentation. I think that is something that is easy to, to implement. So I think that that is mm -hmm. that is a, what we call a low-hanging fruit. So so would that be helpful for you as a clinician if that would be included in the reports you get on the annual scan? If we could uh, stratify the patient protocols and we can optimize all these things that we uh, talked about, it would be interesting to perhaps implement it in a smaller patient group with uh, maybe aggressive disease and where we have the possibility of detecting these things and, and just just taking them into account, not necessarily doing uh, clinical uh, decisions, 
uh, by these measures, but uh, getting used to seeing them uh, and, and perhaps uh, getting a little bit more experience uh, in, in how we perhaps can use them in the clinical practice on a, perhaps not a, a daily, but a yearly basis. Yes. Very interesting. For the, for the white matter, I think there are also new ways to look at it. So I think the white matter volume is interesting, but the white matter can be really nicely studied with diffusion MRI. That means that you're actually looking at the local diffusion of water in the white matter. And because these are cables, the water will always go in, in the direction of the main tracts. And that means that we have actually possibility to look into more depth into the microstructure, not in the macrostructure and the volume. And there are new methods out there which actually can dissociate much better what's going on there. So, so things like remolization, axon degeneration uh, can be torn apart a little bit more from other things. So we can increase the sensitivity of what's going on. So for the normal appearing white matter, there are new ways. And then combining them with gray matter volume changes, that could actually be a very good way of looking into this. So, so I, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to say, to put all my money in one bag. I think there are so many things out there. They have to be feasible. And white matter imaging with diffusion MRI in a smart way, we, we just have, have concluded a study which shows that this is that there's a lot of things to kind of harvest, which we have not harvested yet. So that would be would, would be great. And, and maybe more, you can tell about maybe more biochemical things, which, which we could also add to the equation. Yes, definitely. We, we are beginning to use the neurofilament light measures in the clinical practice, not to make decisions, but to, to support decisions. Uh, you could say we, as for now, we use uh, NFL values from the spinal fluid, which have a very high correlation to neuronal degradation. So this has been shown in, in many studies, of course. Uh, there are also pitfalls in this. We have uh, a more narrow interval uh, for normal and uh, accelerated uh, neural degradation. And we have to also uh, take into uh, account that this might be possible to measure and uh, have more accurate blood measures uh, in the future. But this is this very interesting way of looking at uh, neural degradation and, and of course, uh, also uh, with relation to development of uh, cerebral atrophy uh, during the years. And we might also mention this regard the OCT method, which is the optical coherence tomography, where we measure the, the retinal fiber layer in the eye. And it has been shown to correlate quite narrow, narrowly with cerebral atrophy. Uh, in MS. So using other modalities, also other imaging modalities, PET scanning, for example, looking at uh, neuroinflammation and also looking at um, cerebral perfusion is very promising in order to determine and uh, predict cerebral atrophy on a longer basis. Very interesting. This sounds really promising for the future. Hartwig, you have another? I think event? it's always important to keep it simple. So, so I think if, if you want to do something for every patient, I think, uh, you know, gray matter atrophy, spinal cord, diameter, thalamus volume, this would be things you, you could measure in every patient. But then those difficult patients, which you said, with mm. which aggressive course, maybe we should then escalate it and add other things. And the optic nerve is, is one of those hotspots of multiple sclerosis. We can actually assess it. At, uh, we have the 
the, the biochemistry which can help us. And, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's a pattern we can judge. It's not one number of one volume which a radiologist then has to give to the clinician. And I think both has value. The, the one can add and, and you can learn. And the other one is, is very important for, for, you know, the very the big scheme that, that is with a lot of examination that is in the patients where we have trouble. So we talked about gray matter and white matter atrophy, but actually one thing that has come up in recent congresses, there's a lot of focus on these black holes and slowly evolving lesions. Can you please elaborate a little bit on that? I think black hole is actually not a really nice term. You know, a black hole in, in the stars is where everything sucks in. But what they actually, what it actually means is that there is white matter which has completely been absorbed and has replaced by a complete lesion. So it is actually local atrophy in a way. So there's a loss of tissue in the white matter. And we had not paid a lot of interest into this, but it turns out that these uh, black holes sometimes slowly grow, that the rim around that hole is basically active, that there is inflammation and that grows. And maybe, maybe Morton can tell a little bit more about the clinical significance of this. In the beginning of the lesion, uh, when you visualize it on the MRI, you see an enhancement of uh, gadolinium or contrast. And then uh, you can see that some lesions regenerate, but other lesions uh, is uh, worsening of the pathological process. And this leads to a black hole. And black holes uh, can be persistent. And uh, as Hartby says, this is uh, very crucial for the function of the brain because there is a large part of the axons in the lesion that is actually transected and uh, leading to neurological dysfunction. And it has been shown in several studies that black hole area corresponds to also the, the patient's uh, function, both cognitively and, uh, and physically. It's, uh, it's a very important uh, issue to have further studies on, and especially also to look at the relevance in, in, uh, in the context with uh, brain atrophy and, and chronic uh, brain dysfunction. And, and maybe a technical side note on this, they make our life quite difficult in terms of segmentation because we want to segment the brain into gray matter, white matter, and then cerebrospinal fluid. But now we have these black holes which are mimicking the cerebrospinal fluid. So, so they are kind of a challenge in terms of segmenting the brain properly and they can basically cause uh, misestimations of different volumes. So, so we are very alert about... So this is something, uh, the algorithm, so the mathematical rules we use uh, need to focus on to deal with these black holes. Very interesting. But uh, for example, if you would measure the thalamic volume, that would not be affected by the black holes, for example. No, but the white matter and uh, cerebrospinal fluid. So you would you would get changes there and you get some gray zones there. And maybe it's in one measurement, it's more t- taken in that direction and then segmented in the other direction. And then you get changes, which you actually don't want. That's why we usually do visual inspection of our imaging results in order to keep an eye on what the computer does. So I think uh, I have one final question. I think you have already mentioned it a little bit. So just to to kind of end with, if you were thinking of three tips for getting the most reliable brain atrophy measures, what would that be? Well, I think we've touched upon most of it. I think uh, that the gray matter volume is very important and uh, combine this uh, with the other modalities. We talked about gray matter segmentation in the MS brain and supported by laboratory findings with uh, neurofilament uh, measurements, which has to be refined, and we have to understand them uh, much better, but this is a very promising technique. 
And then uh, I think the OCT, we've waited some time for it to be well characterized and, and have a breakthrough in, in clinical context. And I think this is uh, also a technique where we can visualize the brain directly and very simply, as Hartley also requested, and, and make use of these different modalities in order to evaluate developing disease in the MS patient. My three points would be standardization, standardization, and standardization. <laughs> and standardization for the radiographer, actually when acquiring the images, so the whole acquisition part, standardization in the data analytical part, using the same software, knowing how to use it. And then the third, the person interpreting it, standardizing this, that not it needs to be a person who has experience and who knows it and is into it. So these three lines have to be standardized and then a lot of things would help. But that, of course, is more expensive and is really not compatible with how we at the moment do our clinical job. And then we have the fancy things which we can add on and which will bring new development. But standardization, standardization and standardization, that would be a quite easy fix to get started uh, for everybody, including all patients we are kind of looking at at the moment. I totally agree. So I think we're going to end here with this uh, great uh, take-home messages from Morten and Hartwig. And I want to thank you both for, for joining this. This has been uh, really, really exciting for me. And I hope also for everyone out there. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you very Bye. much. Thank you for listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme.